0: Well speaking of kooky, today is April 1st and we have a no-jokes uh episode. <laughs> We're excited to have you here. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. If you were here early, you of course witnessed our green room chatter. And um, just as we do every Friday, we reserve today as the dedicated weekly show for our ask and answer. We want to thank Fundraising Academy for being the underwriter of every single Friday. And we also want to thank Bloomerang, your part time controller, Nonprofit Nerd, American Nonprofit Academy, Staffing Boutique, Nonprofit Thought Leader, and the Nonprofit Atlas to be with us along with Fundraising Academy each and every day um, for us to to be here unscripted, to have a wonderful, casual conversation. Julia Patrick, thanks for starting this wonderful show and allowing me to serve as your co-host. Uh, Julia is the CEO of the American Nonprofit Academy. I'm Jarrett Ransom, Julia's personal nonprofit nerd, but I can be yours too, because I like to say there's plenty to go around. I'm a uh, CEO of the Raven Group. And uh, again, so today, every single um, question is going to be something that you, our viewers, our listeners sent in. And Julia and I are going to shoot from the hip, but collectively, we have over, what, 50 60 years of experience in the nonprofit sector from our hips so watch out Shakira we're coming oh my god when you put it that way it makes me feel uh, uh, old. no that's these, a lot these of hips time. got some I mean look my arms are disappearing um <laughs> these hips have got some experience in them fabulous.
1: Well, it's true. And I want to remind everybody, if you want to see more of what we can do with our hips, you can see us on Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Vimeo, YouTube TV. And we now have a podcast. Yes. All of our episodes are being put up in podcast format. We're on more than 20 streaming uh, podcast sites where you can, uh, you know, cue us up and get us where you like to consume your podcast. So um, thanks to our executive producer, Kevin Pace, who's done all that. And it's really amazing already because we do a daily show. We're like jumping up on the charts, Jarrett. And so we'll be reporting uh, that out fairly soon, but we're really picking up some traction and we want to thank all of our listeners. Okay. Sister. um, Are you ready to go for the first question?
0: No. Just no. joking. <laughs> of course, I know, the
1: it, it's really true. And you know what? This first question is hilarious. It really isn't. It's kind of breaks my heart, but I just thought it was funny. So I hate to say it. And also it's a name withheld, which you know, are my favorites. favorites. I'm in a human service campus of a major city. My manager has told me that I need to be more circumspect and not quite so jolly at work. I have tremendous respect for the seriousness of my work, but I like to joke around to break the tension. Is this bad? Isn't
0: that fascinating? That is fascinating. Um, So I am not familiar with this word circumspect, so I'm really glad that I can put it in context. (laughs) <laughs> right. And not so jolly. So name withheld. Um, I'm really glad to see you uh, bringing some levity perhaps to yeah. to uh, the environment. One of my clients right along with you is a uh, human service campus where, you know, there is some um. Talk. Critical scenarios that that take place. It's a very transient community. It's very trauma informed. Um, there's a lot going on all of the time. And so, you know, we really do have to mind our P's and Q's when it comes to being aware and to observe our surroundings, uh, to make sure that, you know, everyone's safety is first and foremost. And um like you, I like to joke, so I appreciate the levity. You know, I think that we need that. Um, I have learned over my years that uh, there's a time and a place, right? And so, really understanding that. If my mom were watching, and maybe she is, she used to tell me that I had no filter at one point in my life. But I guarantee you, name withheld, I do have a filter now. At some point, I guess, in throughout my maturity years, it has grown <laughs> and uh, so I really do think it really depends on you know uh, when and where you're using your uh, your jolly jovial side, perhaps in the staff meetings or perhaps during your lunch breaks, perhaps one-on-one with staff, you know is probably some of those better times but really realizing when the situation does need that serious tone and um, so I think there's a fine balance but I'd hate for you to lose all that jolly.
1: Yeah, I mean, I
0: think it's like people
1: who work. You know, they would say in ER wards. You know, um, that you have such high levels of stress that sometimes yeah. that behavior helps to kind of recenter folks and and you know cut some of that cortisol that's like racing through your body because of that adrenaline hit and um, the joy of working and and being you know, I don't know, jolly. And sometimes we are so serious that it elevates a negative situation. And I think we can be compassionate, but we can be fun and human. And, um, you know, yeah, it's, it's really an interesting thing. I mean, you know, there's two different ways to look at this too. Are you laughing at somebody or are you laughing with somebody, you know, laughing at somebody has no place. But laughing with somebody, I think, has a place.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's very—it's it, fascinating. Point. Yeah, good it's, point. It's a fascinating thing, Jarrett, and I—I I love. I know that you—you're working with a client in a really intense part of our community on some heavy-duty stuff. So I appreciate your your um, response. So wow. Okay. Well, name withheld. I say stay jolly. Stay jolly. Stay jolly. Yeah. jolly. Yeah, I love it. Okay, let's. Oh, we, let's. Um.
0: Okay. Our previous guest wants us to throw the show over to her, so just be I careful. Know. It's April Fool's, and we might do that. <laughs> I'm
1: sorry. I'm sorry. I lagged. I got a message um, through our portal, and I was like, "What? Okay." <laughs> so I, I'm back, and she's back. Okay. So let's talk with Linda from Chicago, Illinois. I'm building a development team and I am the development director. My question is this, how long should a new development officer be a part of our team before they are allowed to visit with donors by themselves or without one of our more seasoned team members? You know what? No one's ever asked us this question. Oh my God. That is hilarious. Your That's funny. <laughs> so I told you this would be a, a quirky show today. I know it's April Fool's. It's April Fool's. Okay, for those of you who can't see, Jarrett is pondering this very interesting question with a massive mug that is part unicorn, part cow, complete with... No, all unicorn. Oh, all unicorn? Okay. Yeah, this was a
0: Mother's Day oh, present. A Isn't rainbow, okay.
1: It's a good thing. Okay. Okay. So development director, how should they be allowed or encouraged to go out on their own without
0: somebody from the team? It's really an interesting question. This is an interesting question, Linda. I've never been posed this question. Um, I have a couple of, of initial thoughts for this how seasoned is this professional? have they like have they served in this capacity and role previously throughout their life either you know as a, a staff member or as a volunteer as a board member? Um, and so I really think it comes with the the comfort level of the person as well as their ability to share the narrative of the mission. And I also want to say of the financials of the organization. So I really don't think there is a tried and true, like you have to be here, you know, six months, you have to pass these proficiency tests. So I really think it has to do with the, with the person Um, I know Fundraising Academy has some really good and strong courses that can help you with this. You know, uh, our dear friend, Tony Bell, talks about from the Fundraising Academy, your presentation style. And I think honoring every individual's presentation style is really important to their success and therefore the mission success um, of meeting with this donor. So. I don't think there's there's a set timeline, Julia. I think it really depends on the the individual and how experienced, comfortable, poised, confident that they are um, in a situation like this.
1: Yeah, I think you're right, and you know maybe in time is not the the measurement here, but it's number of visits. You know, to simply say, okay, I'm, you know, for the first three visits we're going to have a more seasoned team member go with you, then they could say, yeah, that's not really the correct fact point or, you know, how to your point, Jared saying, well, these are some of the more um, stringent financial numbers or, yeah. or data points that we want to be accurate that's right. with. And so, but wow, Linda, really interesting. I mean, Good Jared, never ever been asked that
0: question before. No, no. And I do think it's a great question. I love your response, Julia, you know, bring this individual or individuals into the fold, let them observe and kind of shadow other conversations, whether they're via zoom or in person in real life. I think that's, you know, all of these scenarios have different um, pros and cons. And I think that just really strengthens the opportunity. I also am a fan of role play, so if you have an opportunity to do this within your team or volunteers or board members, use this to strengthen the ability of your teammates. Do they have to wear costumes? I mean, only if you're into cosplay.
1: (laughs) 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 Okay, I'm sorry. I could not help myself. (laughs) Okay, let's go to Antonio from Houston, Texas. I've been watching a fellow staff member from our nonprofit who I think is amazing and would make a great fundraiser. Do you think it's a good idea to take someone from programming and bring them into fundraising? Yes.
0: You do, Jared? I do. Okay. Because here's the thing, Antonio. This person has seen the program like- in its most intimate form. And so they can speak to the program, the delivery, the evaluation, the metrics, the success stories, like they really know the program. So if they have the ability and the interest to um to share that as a fundraising ambassador, why not? Now, I also want to say you want to be mindful of the gap that creates in your program team. So, you know, make sure that you do talk to your program staff or you make sure you talk to the leadership before you just kind of start poaching from within, <laughs> because right. that could also create some bad blood within your organization. And you certainly don't want that. But I have seen some fantastic, um, fundraisers that have really come in from the program side. I think it's great. You know, I like what you said about talking with leadership
1: and I'm sorry. I'm like so fuzzy right now. Um,
0: I thought it was my unicorn. I thought, uh Oh, what did I pour in this drink? (laughs) This is
1: the April for the April. Oh, there we go. Okay. She's back. Um, I think you're, you're right about talking with leadership of programming and saying hey i rec- i recognize something in this person and mm-hmm. and i love what you said you know these are the people that witness the mission in action and so even if you don't bring them in like and try and get them to become a fundraiser even if you engage them into witnessing about what goes on with your donors i think that would be
0: super cool i love bringing program staff in to talk to yeah. the owners. I'll share a very, very short uh, story. Yesterday, this is a true story. Yesterday, I met with uh, the Parsons Foundation, which is a very large foundation here in our community. Some of you may know them as the owners of GoDaddy, <laughs> which is also very well known across. Um, so it was myself, it was our COO, and it was the program staff. And they were able, not the staff completely, but one member, she was able to give those true numbers within the program team. And so we collectively had different skill sets to share with a potential donor and a prospective you know, investor to talk about the holistic approach within the organization. And it was a win-win because answers that I didn't know, the program staff knew. Right. I love it. And you know, I think too, when we're talking
1: to investors and donors, they want to know boots on the ground, what's happening. Yeah. You know, good for you. I think that's super cool. Well, I hope Antonio that that gives you some um, ideas. And um, I think it's a really great thing that you can recognize that and that you're looking. Uh, That's even more powerful. You're actually looking. Okay. Let's go on to James from Buffalo, New York. I bet it's still cold there. Is the COI policy that everyone seems to talk about just for board members COI conflict of interest?
0: Mm, That is a good question.
1: You, why don't you start Julia? So the COI conflict. Yeah. COI. Absolutely. It is part of the 990 form that you need to submit. And there's a box that's ticked Do you have a COI policy? And that's pretty much it. But absolutely, it needs to be a policy. We had a guest on earlier in the week who was an attorney, who is an attorney, who said, you need to be reviewing your policies every two to four years because of risk and how the laws changed and all that. COI, that's one of those things. Now, COI is designed to help create a more transparent, more thoughtful approach, especially to contracting. So therefore, for example, if you were a board member and your spouse was, let's say, the CEO of a bank that your nonprofit was banking with, you would have to, or you should, acknowledge that. And then whenever there was a vote or even a discussion about that banking relationship you would recuse yourself. That's kind of an example of how that might look. Perhaps you are an owner of a company that is going to, let's say they're involved in construction and your company is going to be part of a bid process for the nonprofit that you serve. Again, you would need to step aside and recuse yourself and that would be tracked in your minutes and declared. The COI policy, I'm starting to see more and more organizations extend that to their C-suite, which I think is kind of smart. So for example, let's say the head of your uh, finance department, you know, they should not be engaging in contracts that the board might not ever see if there's any type of arm length transaction to somebody in their family or themselves. So for example, let's say you're the head of HR and you have an in law that runs as staff, a staffing company. You would need to recuse yourself from any of those um, decisions that would make a contract viable or go through. Right? It's that type of a thing that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So
0: yeah, I, I agree, and I um, <laughs> pardon me. Being the you know, I cannot think of the attorney's name um, from Ogden. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, it, it, was yeah. Monday, it was this week, Monday, Monday, Tuesday. Um, so we were talking, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Glazer, we were talking about the bylaws as well as the policies. And I do remember that. And so James, I have seen this mostly with the board members to Julia's point, you know, the C-suite executive level in particular um, is also a really good, um, you know, kind of level of individuals within your organization what I see the most instead of the COI is an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement, okay. and I think that's something that you might want to consider. You know, is it really a conflict of interest, or is this a non-disclosure agreement? What are the difference, and when do we when do we use each of those um, you know functions in our organization? And um, you know, one thing you might want to think about is if you know you do allow your staff to have jobs outside of your organization. Is that a conflict of interest or might they be sharing intellectual property that you might want to have disclosed um, and covered with that NDA? So, again, you know, I have really only see it, seen this, James, with the board members, but I do think that you might also want to take a look at the non-disclosures. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I like what you, you just said
1: about that because that, <laughs> oh my God, how many of those mugs do you have? This is hilarious. This is chewy. <laughs> Oh, my God. Okay. That's an award winner. Hey, I think that's a good thing. For as many different policies that you have, You know, there is that piece of it that we need to be going back to our staff members and doing a review. And it can be many different policies. But as we share that and we try and reinforce that behavior that's acceptable and identify what's not acceptable, that could be done through a review, say, at the beginning of every year.
0: Well, and for staff, let's let's remember that employee handbook, right? That's something that we really want to cover the majority of our staff, all of our staff, with your employee handbook. So just like Jeffrey Glazer mentioned, you know, it's not just your policies, your bylaws, but perhaps you also take a look at your employee handbook.
1: I love it, Jared. Good, good job. See, you are a thinker. Okay, let's go to Judith. Oh, city withheld. What is your take on having two galas a year? We're eyeing having an early fall and then a late spring event. These would support a cultural organization and be black tie.
0: Wow. interesting. My take on that is exhausting. <laughs> that is my true take. No jokes here. Yeah. Um, but now what I have seen, Judith, is more of the breakfast model, which you might know as Benavon or raising more money. If you serve a statewide or multiple geographic locations, yep. you could very well have multiple large black tie events like a gala. And so looking at that um, based off of your, your community, maybe you have one in person, maybe you have one only streaming. Um, those are things that we have to truly consider right now. And so I would really um, take a take a better look, not, not to the fact of... Should we do it? But can we do it? Is it it excellent by way of capacity? Do we have the team? Do we have the volunteers? Do we have a committee? Um, Because it is a lot, a lot, a lot of work.
1: You know, I, given that it's a cultural organization, most cultural organizations have seasons Mm -hmm. and maybe, and, you know, so if it's a performance oriented uh, organization, Early fall, that makes me think that that's what it is. Like it's a symphony, ballet, opera, maybe doing a black tie kickoff where you're kicking off the season because that's going to help amp up ticket sales or subscriptions. It's going to get everybody excited. And um, I've been uh, I've been involved in things like this where we actually had these events on the stage or in the theater. And it's really fun. And then we kind of did on several occasions, um, I'm thinking with opera and a ballet uh, organization, two different organizations, we did snippets of what was going to be coming up. Oh, great. Right. And we had everybody like on the stage and seated. And it was really fun and different. You know, you're not sitting in a ballroom. And it was still very la-di-da. But You know, most people, how many people in their life have been able to be on a stage or say, yeah, I got to go behind like, you know, the curtains and what it looks like.
0: That's right. And
1: um, I think that could be kind of fun. And then maybe for the spring to end the season or to do something that memorializes what occurred. But I agree with you. That's a heck of a lot of work.
0: You had even mentioned, Julia, like the dress rehearsals. That's a great opportunity to have an event. Um, I've been to our local symphony here and during intermission, they have like a VIP wine and cheese reception, um, which is really, really nice to be a part of that. So I think, Judith, in particular, with it being a cultural organization, it allows you the opportunity to be creative, And I think that's that's a lot of fun. What if you even had like an understudy opportunity? Where Julia, you were saying, you know, to be on stage or to really have that experience Mm -hmm. is something that cultural opportunity, cultural organizations have the great opportunity to do.
1: You know, we uh, always—I was a trustee of of Arizona Opera, and for years, and we always invited our top level donors to something that was. behind the scenes. And if it was, you know, we always for the dress rehearsals, um, we always had, you know, high level donors come, we would take high level donors into the practice rooms. Because in opera, if you're close to a a performer, you you can feel the power of their voice, which Mm. most people don't realize it actually goes through your body. And we would do that and donors would be like, oh my gosh, you know, they would just wow. freaked out at how that, you know, literally bounced off their body. And it was a fun thing, even for me to this day is a fun thing to witness. That's so amazing. absolutely to engage the behind the scene things, I think is always great. I think it's meaningful, it's different. And having just one more black tie gala, maybe not the best idea. Wow. wow, you know, this has been another great day. Jarrett, thank you for sharing your
0: fabulous mugs. You're the- welcome. The- Happy it. <laughs> <laughs> Right. I mean, they're just fun, but but I definitely have the one here for Fundraising Academy. So thank you for being our underwriter for our Friday Ask and Answer. Julia, it's always fun to be here with you. And we are so grateful to have the continued amazing support from Bloomerang, your part-time controller, Fundraising Academy, Nonprofit Nerd, the American Nonprofit Academy, Staffing Boutique, Nonprofit Thought Leader, as well as the Nonprofit Atlas. Absolutely. And as we enjoy this first day of spring
1: and a day that oftentimes um, brings a lot of levity, we want to remind you and I think ourselves, as I like to say, stay well so you can do well. Thank you, everybody. Have a great and fun day. Yes. See you Monday. (laughs) Bye.